This is the first session of Dr. Kuntz's lectures at the Wittenberg Academy Family Retreat in Iowa, a wonderful event for Lutheran homeschooling families that's held each year. He taught in this presentation on Psalm 46 and the future of the church. We're going to go for about 45 to 50 minutes and then leave time for comments and questions for you to process some of these things and we can talk about them and at that point it, you just shout your question and then I'll shout it into the microphone and then everybody can hear it and we'll have a lot of fun. So we'll go for a little while too close to the top of the hour. We're going to start at the end because that is the very thing that people are most actively thinking about is the end. Anywhere that I go, I encounter people thinking about the end. This is sometimes the end times, but that's actually not maybe the hot item that it was in the 1980s and 1990s in certain parts of American Christianity. Instead, what Christians are envisioning particularly is the end of the familiar or the end of what they know, or the end of factors that have been common to their thinking about the church, and particularly the church's future, such that if those factors go away, they can envision an end to the whole thing. And what I find most commonly in our church, this is not necessarily the case in every church body, every communion in the American church, but in our church, what I find most commonly in thinking about the end is a certain kind of quiet despair. That when people get together, now this is a great exception in this room, you understand, because we heard children singing God's praises, right? So that just changes how you think about everything when you hear a child sing God's praises. But most of our churches are not this full of children. In fact, many of our churches have no children in them. So you can understand what I mean by quiet despair, because you don't want to say it out loud. Because what's happening on paper is that you believe in Jesus' resurrection. You also believe on paper in Jesus' ascension to the Father's right hand. And therefore, you do believe, at least on paper, it's in the paper of all the Bibles in the pews, that Jesus is reigning over all things for the good of his body, the church. But we're not talking today or tomorrow or Saturday about what's on paper. That's not that interesting. And the paper, you could always go somewhere else and read. You can read what's on paper. You can learn more on paper about Jesus' ascension or Jesus' rule or his session. That's a good Latinate term, his session at the Father's right hand. What we're interested in talking about at this time is what is occurring in our midst, both quiet despair and other things, and we're beginning at the end because I want to start by acknowledging what it would seem is going on, which is that a lot of us, I'm not saying on paper, I'm not saying on paper, I'm saying functionally, do not believe those things that I just mentioned about Jesus. I'm saying functionally. Okay. What do I mean by functionally? I mean that you can tell the difference between somebody that says that they like baseball and somebody that practically can actually tell you things about their favorite baseball team. There's a difference between owning the ball cap and knowing the batting averages of everyone in the regular starting lineup. And we're not really asking people in the Christian church to be the kind of casual fan that has the ball cap because he lives in the area. 
That's a model of church membership that is, of course, common in American history because Christianity is common in American history. So a lot of our people commonly and functionally think about belonging to a church in that way. And in a society that was largely Christian or presented very few formal or informal threats to Christianity's expansion, let alone its contraction, then it would be normal and understandable to have fans like that. But something you notice, and I notice this particularly now living in Colorado, is that because people are not largely from there, and because the Rockies are an atrocious baseball team, and will be, and probably have been, and will continue to be, guess what? Almost nobody wants to wear a Rockies hat. So when all of the factors that might help somebody want to be a sort of, you might say, a casual member, or we use this term, the pastor certainly use this term, an inactive member, whatever precisely that means, when all of the things that help those sorts of folks continue to belong to the church in some kind of a way, all the factors that made that even possible or thinkable, let alone desirable, what, what, why do you want to be an inactive member of the body of Christ? As those factors slip away, there's no real benefit in belonging in an inactive way. As those factors slip away, then of course the church goes away. Because it's just much easier, both for the inactive and for the active members, to stop. And the inactive members are, of course, less and less likely to have their children baptized and confirmed and you know the stats and you have all the same experiences, so you know these things. So think about the active member watching the inactive members, let alone the number of active members, slip and slip and slip and slip. And of course they don't want to say out loud, and I, when I say that functionally they believe one thing and on paper profess another, what I mean is precisely this that part of them very fervently believes in the truth and part of them, some other part of them, believes almost unconsciously in the opposite. And that if we don't address these things, both in a place like this or from our pulpits or in our Bible classes, then the end surely is coming, not necessarily for the world, but, but necessarily for us. Because if you don't actually talk about what is occurring, then you're saying a lot of things. It's all very interesting. But you're not saying the thing that is on the person's heart, which is, for example, does it matter if I go to church or not? Does it matter if I put in the effort, which requires me at this point, I say this in front of homeschoolers as a homeschooler, requires me to be a little weird, right? I have to be a little weird to put in the effort that nobody else is putting in, effort that they're putting in instead to travel baseball and, and travel hockey and lots of other things. Is it worth the effort that I'm going to put in so that my children are Christians in the next generation? Is it actually worth it? So when we talk about the end or we talk about quiet despair, we're not just talking about a problem for people who have never heard a sermon or had a Bible class about things that they observe with their own eyes in daily life. That's one thing. I'm also talking about the people in this room who need encouragement in well-doing. That if you are doing what is necessary to make sure that your children are Christians, 
you should be and you ought to be encouraged. Not just ignore these issues, these decisions that you have made about your family finances and your family's time and lots of other things. This needs to be honored and discussed. Because I don't think that quiet despair actually should be dwelling in the hearts of Christians. And I'm saying that the reason that it is is because we have largely been remiss, most of all the clergy, in addressing the things that make up the quiet despair. And if those things are addressed, let me tell you what I have heard when people listen to what I'm saying about quiet despair. This particularly pertains to church planting and replanting, just what I do, okay? Is that they feel relief that someone is acknowledging that their church could be gone in five years. Now, maybe it still will be, or maybe it won't, but at least someone's talking about it. And if it is gone in five years, now they have someone that acknowledges that the gifts that God has given them can now be redeployed, reused for somewhere else in God's kingdom, for somewhere else in the vineyard's work. But before that, no one acknowledges what could actually happen or what it is that they feel when they sit down in the pew and the pastor preaches and everything goes on as it always has. It's just that the numbers are going down and down and down and down. So the first place to find something other than a sheer end is to acknowledge that the end could be there. And there's something very powerful about acknowledging that. Because we're not acknowledging it in order to stay there or in order to obsess over ends. What we're talking about this afternoon is Psalm 46. It's a psalm on which Luther bases the hymn that we all like to sing and we all know we probably don't even have to open the hymnal to sing it. But it's also about the church's future. Because in Christ, because of Christ's resurrection and ascension and session and reign, the church has a glorious future. You'll find that throughout the Bible you just often won't find it in modern American Christianity expressed as such. You'll find despair or complacency or acquiescence or gradual slippage, what was called in the 19th century among the Baptists a downgrade, meaning this, that gradually, especially as the church shrinks numerically, it also slips and slips and slips doctrinally and practically because it is despairing. So it's changing rapidly, and you can see this in many church bodies today, it's changing rapidly because it feels like accommodation is the solution. And if we accommodate to the right degree or at the right time or in a way that's approved of by outside authorities who aren't using the Bible, then we will somehow stop the slipping will stop falling down the hill. That downgrade is something that you're going to see more of in the future. But Christ has better things in mind for his church than gradual downgrade. In fact, he has a much better future in mind for his church. Now, we referenced Luther, but what we're going to do today, but especially tomorrow and Saturday, is not to use Luther sh for sheer reference. 
Like, let me prove to you that I'm a real Lutheran. I read Luther. I'm referencing Luther. We want to use Luther and his framework of what he calls the three estates, but what we're calling fortresses for reasons that are or will become clear. His framework of the three estates is used in order for us to understand what it is that God has actually given us and is giving us and will give us. Because Christians engage in quiet despair when they don't practically, functionally believe that God is living and active. He is a reference point, somewhat like Luther, in and to the past. This is why alongside quiet despair, you will also find something else extremely powerful in our midst, which is nostalgia. Nostalgia is something that you engage in when you feel like the past is gone and dead, but you would like to go back. Nostalgia is not the same thing as resurrection. <clears throat> Nostalgia looks backward and hopes to revive something that God, in his fatherly wisdom, has put somewhere else. He didn't give it to you. You didn't get to have a church in 1950. You have a church in 2023. You didn't get to have lots of families just like your own who actually show up every Sunday and teach their children the faith. You got to be usually somewhat unusual in your own congregation. In his fatherly wisdom, that's what he has given us. There are exceptions to those things. And in some places, I talked to enough pastors, I know this, it's still like 1988 but that's increasingly few places. And was 1988 even as good as 1950? I'm not sure. This is the thing about nostalgia. You always end up with a sort of pointless debate about which year had the best music, right? And when you're debating that, that's obviously conditioned by your age and your nostalgia for when you were 19 and your body felt better when you got up in the morning. But it, it also is a pointless exercise for this reason, that you simply cannot go back there. Think about the way that Israel uses God's promises. You can look at Psalm 78, for example. We'll look at 46 because we're looking at David, and we'll explain why. But you look at the way that Israel uses God's promises, and you'll see that those are promises. The past is not used as a desire to return. The desire to return, the sheer nostalgia for a past that you now realize was more comfortable than you thought at the time, is what the Israelites do when they're in the wilderness and they want to go back and they want to eat the food. They want to eat the Egyptian food. That's, that's nostalgia. You want to go back and even if it means slavery, you want to have the nice food that you had or whatever it is that you're longing for. The godly use of the past is to use it as a marker of God's current and future faithfulness. They're going to recount the deeds of the Lord because that's what ensures the fact that he is living and active now. So rather than indulge in nostalgia, you instead have a God who in the past was faithful, is now faithful, and will be faithful, which aligns with how he explains 
his name to Moses when he reveals it. I am who I am. Always. Right? Or, Paul says in Hebrews, Jesus Christ the same today, yesterday, and forever. This is also why when we think about the past, I do not like the way that many in my generation talk about it as if it was both delusional and unreal. So that people from older generations, and this is, I mean, boomers are the absolute scapegoat, people from previous generations can therefore be the target of great, let's just say dislike mildly. We could say, sometimes it sounds like hatred, really, more than dislike. That creates a very unbiblical attitude toward elders and the past. The past was probably not as good as the nostalgic remember, but it did happen, and that experience, the reason that the gray head is a crown of glory, that experience does actually mean something for the church's future. The church is not meant to be, and you know this from raising your own children, it's not meant to be a place of intense strife between generations. That is not necessary. You probably know some of this history that the word teenaged, if you do a Google engram on it, teenager, teenaged, teenage as an adjective, these are all things that really only exist since like roughly the 40s. People didn't assume in previous generations that between like 13 and 18 you just hate your own parents. Right? Doesn't have to be. In the same way, we're not meant to make war on previous generations. Was their experience limited and therefore of limited value for the present? Of course it was. But so is mine. Was it therefore unreal because it's limited? Not at all. It was real. They learned things. They know things we don't know. Because when you are nostalgic, whether you're 25 right now or you're 65 right now, when you're nostalgic, you're always going to like the music from when you were 15. And since that's different music, the generations will not get along with each other. As a practical matter, this is immensely important for our churches is that we don't allow anyone of any age, however old particularly, anyone of any age to engage in quiet despair. Because older folks are more prone to this, partly because they have a living memory of when things were less difficult, like getting people to show up every week, just for example. And that memory can be very burdensome to them, and it's something that should be acknowledged with them and for them, so that they understand that they also have a living and active God, even as they have seen the world change so radically. So we're going to use the wisdom of previous generations in this way, particularly Luther, over the next couple of days in order to understand things. But what we're going to start with is Psalm 46. So if you have a Bible, whether you have it on your phone or in your lap, you want to open that up. We're going to go to Psalm 46 and pay especially close attention to time words. Because time is the problem. If I'm obsessed with the past and I'm despairing about the present, 
what that does is that it, it abolishes the future. If I'm obsessed with the past and despairing about the present, that abolishes the future. Now, I'm not speaking literally like the future goes away. I mean that for you, when you are nostalgic and despairing, the future goes away. You cannot conceive of what could be in front of you, much less plan for it in a way that is wise. Because when you're thinking about it, you just can't. Things are too closed down. You can't imagine what would be happening 20 years from now. And something we're going to see throughout David's life, which is why we chose David, partly because we have most all of it, right, from his finding, right, unexpected even to his own father, right? So here's a future not even his own father could conceive of for his son. From his finding all the way to his death, you have the entirety of life. Then you also have so many psalms put in his own words. This is a great help to Christians to think of themselves as they read David and what it is that God has done in and through David's life so that you can learn to consider these things in your own life profitably. Most of all, the Lord's steadfast love and mercies. Because we're going to say that's what opens up the future for you personally and for the church corporately, the, the future is opened up when you have a lively sense of who the Lord actually is. Now, this is especially poignant if you can think of this scene, or maybe you lived through this scene a couple of weeks ago when we had Easter, Easter Sunday, first Sunday of Easter, and the pastor is excited and he gets up in the pulpit and he says in a loud, dramatic voice that sometimes he doesn't even otherwise have, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And he wants to hear something like that from the people. He wants to hear that back. But those 17 people can't muster that. Because there's a sense in which they're just not feeling it. And I'm not saying that because feelings determine reality. I'm saying that because they do determine the way that a group senses the future either does or doesn't exist. And that what they're feeling instead, those 17, as they look around, is that their kids and their grandkids didn't make it, even though they said yesterday when the family got together that they would be there. So if we can acknowledge those things for the pastor and for the people, maybe we could imagine a future that is different. Maybe we could plan for a future that is very different from that, one that is more like this room than the scene I just described. Take a look at Psalm 46. And I'll read it in three different groups. Whatever sila means, it is some kind of natural marker. Nobody knows what it means. So don't let anyone tell you that he does. But whatever it means, it is a kind of natural marker in the text. So we're going to take this in three groups. The first three verses go this way. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear 
Though the earth should change, and though the mountains shake into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its lofty pride. Two time things to notice there. One is the assertion, and this is Christianity, is simply assertions, right? That's what you believe are assertions or doctrines. They're assertions about reality, is that our God is both a place to flee to and a source of strength when? Right now. So if you have a sense of your Christianity that it was a back when, altogether, that everything about Christianity is in the same tense as suffered under Pontius Pilate, a really good time marker from a long time ago. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's part of it. But you also profess to believe in a Lord and giver of life. You also profess to believe that Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. You profess many other things just Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, just in the creeds, which when people say, well, I don't know what to say about Christianity to other people, I say, well, you know what's in the creed, right? You could say a little bit of that. That wouldn't be so bad. You already know what that is. And there's a power in just asserting. Jesus is reigning over everything. Okay, now they have to deal with that. But notice the assertion here in 46 is that our God is currently a very present help. So if you're thinking of him as far off, or you're thinking of him as I call, now I'm guilty of this myself, so this is how I know. Listen to this. You called, you texted twice, then you called the next day, and he still didn't even respond, but you know that he saw the message. Now I know what this is like because I, I do it myself. And people think of God that way when they hear the 17 say, somewhat weakly, because that's where their voices are. Christ is risen indeed. Hallelujah. They hear that he is somehow away from here. Now this is a problem that David doesn't have. But you can see it's a common problem in the people of Israel. Because you think about all the time, all the time, between when David hears about Goliath and the time when, at that point, Goliath's head has been severed from his body and David holds both the head and the sword. What's going on in the time between? Between I know there's a problem and the problem is now solved. And if you remember, the problem for David is not just that Goliath exists. It's not just that Goliath comes out every day and taunts the armies of the living God, who because they do not trust that if they went into battle as their forefathers had, they would actually succeed. Did you ever think about it that way? Think about this battle in terms of all of the other battles before that. What happens in the battles before that? Sometimes God says, you have too many guys. I don't want that many guys. 
I want fewer guys so that you don't think that this was something you accomplished. I want fewer guys who kind of drink water like a dog. I mean, I want your most embarrassing, most awkward guys who have the most personal presentation problems. I don't know what I'm talking about right now. Um, and I want to send them into battle, right? But they were victorious. So by the time you get to Goliath and the Philistines versus Saul and the Israelites, Israel is actually better organized than it ever has been before. That's a benefit of kings. You want the drawbacks, you can go read what God says to Samuel and Samuel then says to Israel. But if you want a benefit, it's that you have much greater military organization. It's not a bunch of militia-type tribes coming together every so often. It's, you know, it's our military after World War II, not you know, during the Mexican War. Okay. So they're better organized than ever, but they're more scared than ever. And if you think about us, I mean, if you just assess this in terms of sheer money available, people available, resources available, we're in much better shape than we were in 1870. But nobody really ever thinks about it that way. And if you think about the capacities that we have and the speed with which we can move information and the way that we can actually find out who lives uh, three blocks from your church and see if you can get some kind of message to him, you actually have many more capacities than you did in 1910. And I use those terms because 1870 and 1910 are the times when the Missouri Synod is so aggressive in what we now call church planting. They usually called it home missions. But what we now call church planting, that it's trying just for, I think, the, the sake of sheer fun to become on its own without gathering with anybody else, on its own to be the biggest Lutheran church in the United States. And what's funny to me, knowing German, is that people often say, well, that's just Germans. Well, they were just gathering Germans. One, they weren't just gathering Germans. But number two, do you think Germans, any more than anyone else in the world, just automatically go to church? Was there no work involved? Did people not have to do anything? Did the pastors just stand there and they would just build a church? And No, of course there was tons of work involved. But we're at sort of a saw point where we have more than our forefathers did and we do less. We have way more than they did and we do less. So when David shows up, to this battlefield, his complaint is not just that it's happening, it is that Goliath, by doing what he's doing, is mocking the living God. That the name of the living God is being drugged through the mud because the armies themselves of the living God do not believe sufficiently in this name to even enter into battle. That's why everyone's just standing there, looking at each other every morning as Goliath rattles off what he has to say. So they're not really sure that in the present, anything is going to happen. Your other tense thing to notice in the first three verses is, and you probably actually know this, homeschoolers generally know things that other people have forgotten, is that you have the subjunctive. Did you hear that? 
even though this might happen. Should this happen, he would still be a great help. Should things I cannot imagine occur, he would still be a very present help. Take a look at 4 to 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be shaken. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations roar. The kingdoms shake. He gives his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Notice that, and I'm not saying that everyone always thought the world was ending, but everyone did always think that the world was ending. Luther thought that the world was ending when the Turks swept into Hungary and won at the Battle of Mohach in 1526. I bet you remember that though, right? So you knew that people thought the world was ending, right? They're considering this reality that the nations are always raging. That nations that are not in subjection to the Lord Christ are raging. Because they want more. They want to live forever. They want to endure forever. They want to be wealthier. They want to, they want, they want, they want. It's an endless maw and you can't put enough food into it. They want more. They have always raged. So the assurance is this, and this is in the present tense. It's symbolized in our churches by where the altar goes and the way that we behave around the altar. God is in the midst of her. God is not separate. Lutherans should know this more than anybody else. We insist on the biblical doctrine of the Lord's Supper. What? Why? One, because it's what the Bible says. But two, what's the practical effect of the biblical doctrine of the Lord's Supper? It's that God is with you. He's not way off out there. He is here. He is in the midst of Zion. He's not away from Zion, waiting for Zion to figure things out on her own. Maybe she'll figure it out. Like he's gone three weeks out of four every month. He is in the midst of her. Therefore, she shall not be moved. He is in her midst. In the very middle of the whole thing. So he knows the quiet despair, and he knows the nostalgia, and he knows it all. Right? But he's in the midst of her. And you have to think about this in a distance way. Think about when Jesus is far off looking at the people from some kind of distance. You remember this in the Gospels. And they are like what? Sheep without a shepherd. But his response to that is not to say, boy, that is sad. Instead, he is in her midst. He goes into her midst. Now we say this when we say the gospel, that he's in the midst of our sin and our death and our punishment and God's wrath on our sin, right? We say this, 
And then we have the altar in the midst of the church, and we have the people gather around the altar. Do we know what these things mean? So he goes on to say this, and then we'll take, let's say, five minutes for questions or so. Verses 8 to 11. Come behold the works of the Lord, who has appointed desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Start with verse 10. This is a verse that you see on the coffee cups in church kitchens, and they bring them out for the LWML zone rally, and I like it. Because... It is a command to recall. Nothing that I'm going to say today or tomorrow or Saturday is going to actually be innovative or I think personally very insightful. They are things that you already know. And that is what I make it my business to remind God's church of. I think that what we engage in instead when we do nostalgia and particularly when we do quiet despair or less quiet despair is that we do not remember the works of the Lord. So in the present, the command to stop striving, to be still, is the most salutary place to start. Because it means that I have to let go of a search for a future that I will secure. We talked about the future earlier, but I didn't use the verb secure. I said plan. (laughs) When you plan, you are simply aligning your sense of what could happen with what you know from Scripture you should care about and love and then planning for a future that the Lord will give. So if I plan to educate my children in a certain way, or I plan to orient my parish in a certain way, or I plan to devote my family's finances to this instead of that, then what I'm trying to do is honor the fact that as the past is the Lord's and my present is the Lord's, so also the future is the Lord's. Now, when you consider David, you can see that he's always sort of flying into a future that he cannot, nobody could have, planned. Jesse didn't imagine it for him. His brothers didn't imagine it for him. Saul was much taller and had much better hair. So they imagined Saul would be the guy. He looks like the guy. And that's our future. you're always entering a future that is unknown to you. This is not a cause 
for nostalgia because you can't go back there again, nor is it a cause for despair because the Lord is not dead. Notice the time words. Be still and know that I am God. That's right now. But what about the future? Because right now, if I look around in the present, I can see the nations doing lots of things. Things I find unimaginable, things I find disgusting, things I find threatening to my family, all kinds of things that are just absolutely horrible, both for me and for my family, but also for the church. Bad things changing. Wicked things coming to light. Shameful things becoming increasingly unashamed. So when I think about that, it's easy to imagine the opposite of what the Lord says here. But the way that he is your fortress is that you seek him and his word as an actual stronghold now. And then you put him and his word up against those realities and see who prevails. Because he says this about the future, both David's, but also yours. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I will be lifted up. I will be glorified. And that future is still playing out because the gospel is still going out to other lands, to faraway places, but it's also going out here. So I want you to be encouraged in this, that the future belongs to your Lord, who is alive. Their lords all die. Goliath was beheaded. But even more than that, sin was atoned for. Death was crushed underfoot. You don't remember the Battle of Mohach because the Ottoman Empire is gone. Their lords all die. And yours is alive. Should you forget that, subjunctive, should you forget that, you can despair then. Should you fail to recall those works, then you may engage in nostalgia for a time, maybe even from before you were born. But if you recall those things, then you will be and you are not just victorious over your foes, not just victorious. Paul actually wants to go farther than that because he can't find a way to say all that is yours in the resurrection of Christ. So he says, you are more than conquerors. So if you can imagine the, the glory that belongs to David after he beheads Saul, you can imagine that moment as he's holding the head and the sword and he's looking around. Can you imagine the joy and the exaltation over the foe? 
But Paul wants to say that through the resurrection of Christ, you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. So you take David, and you take the head, and you take the sword, and you take all of his victories after that, unlikely as they were, and then you just say, I have more than that. The church has more than that. These 17 people with their weak voices have more than that through him who loves them, who is seated at the Father's right hand, who's reigning over all things for the good of those 17 people and you. I have more than I can ask or imagine. That's our future because that's our present and Jesus is alive. Thank you. Let's take uh, five or ten minutes and so what we'll do is you know, if you want to ask like a practical question or something like that, you know, you don't, you don't have to dispute whether Jesus is alive or something. So, but other things, more practical things, or this is what you see, or this is what you know, or this is how it is. Um, and um, I will repeat whatever it is that you say so that everybody can hear it. So you don't have to shout. My hearing is pretty good. Yes, ma'am, in the back. Has downgrading ever worked for any denomination? So um, a downgrade, and the, the guy to read on this, and he's talking about his own denomination, is Charles Spurgeon, talking about Baptists in the, in the, in the UK in the 19th century. That's where the term comes from. I, I think it's a helpful one but it, because it includes both the slippery slope, you're going downgrade, but it also means that the quality is going down at the same time. So you've got, you've got lessening quality and the slippery slope, and that's just... It's all there, you know? Um, downgrading doesn't work for this reason, that what you're trying to do as a Christian is hold yourself to a biblical standard, and the thing about a biblical standard is that it doesn't change. So you don't even need to upgrade, but you definitely don't want to downgrade because that means that you're becoming sub-biblical. And the funny thing about a downgrade when you become sub-biblical is that you, you're not requiring any longer what the Bible requires for what people believe or what the preacher says or whatever. But at the same time, and this is, this is where um, our confessions on the third use of the law and the formula of Concord are particularly insightful, is that they figure out, those guys realize, what you see throughout the Bible, which is when people don't teach the Lord's word, they do make up their own stuff. So in a downgrade, you're going to get new good works because you're not using biblical good works. And it's, it's like, you know, bad money drives out good is that the counterfeit stuff, traditions of men, this is what Jesus means in Matthew 15, traditions of men will drive out the commandments of the Lord. So in the downgrade, you're both going sub-biblical, but you're also going extra-biblical in what you're requiring of people. And that's not going to work for a church because a church is either biblical or it ceases to exist eventually. Yeah. Um, other, other questions, other thoughts, anybody? Yeah, go ahead. It's tough. It's a lot of people. Go ahead. You guys are brave. Go, go for it. So there are different, I, I would say, nostalgia, just like with people's musical preferences from when they were teenagers, Nostalgia has very different forms depending on what the past of the group was. So nostalgia for um, Lutherans is going to look different than nostalgia for Presbyterians because 
we had, well, we had Walther League. They never had anything like that. And um, so, yeah, I think nostalgia, can, nostalgia has its own particular forms for the church body. Specifically with reference to the Lutheran confessions, nostalgia involves, um, so I'm, I'm trying to describe something that I see. Nostalgia involves, I have my bases covered on the Lutheran confessions, the issues that it handles, and I have my bases covered on a couple of things that the Missouri Synod has already fought over, like the inerrancy of scripture or six-day creation. But as to a present difficulty, I have nothing to say. That's a certain kind of flight, right? Because let me just explain, for example, if my member, I'm just, I'm just stating things that exist, if my member is not getting promoted at work because he's a straight Christian white male, well, that's a present issue that I have to tell him something about from the scriptures. The confessions don't handle that because the confessions aren't dealing with the kind of governmental regime that we are, right? Or the HR regime that he is at work. So I have to say something to him. I can't just say, well, you know, and I mean, a very absurd example of this would be to say like, well, you know, the small called articles don't address that. Well, they didn't need to, right? They were addressing what, were, what do the confessions do? They're both things we adhere to, but they're also a method that we learn how to use so that we can address things that actually happen because the confessions are doing precisely the opposite of avoiding the issue, right? Luther is like, well, I'm looking at the papacy and it looks pretty bad, right? Like right now. So uh, anything can become a source of nostalgia. It can be misused, let's say, nostalgically. Yeah. Um, anybody else? Other, other questions, other comments? Yes, sir, go ahead. What would I say practically to the congregation of 17 we imagined that is unlikely to plant a new congregation? Um, I, I can tell you that because I have... I have a three-pronged, you know, mnemonic device for this, okay? Is that they can revitalize, which is take the things that they have going on and just sort of do them better. And that's a place to start for anybody. That's a place to start for any church. They could replant, which is to acknowledge that it's pretty much all broken, but we need to hold on to the location we have or the people we have, but use them in a completely new way. Um, you know, we need to... We need to figure out a way to get a pastor because we haven't had a pastor for four years or who knows, right? So they could replant or they could redeploy the gifts that God has given them, which is usually mostly real estate and other financial assets and then use it for some other part of the Lord's kingdom. So if you're probably gonna close in five years, when you close, can that money be given to a new church somewhere else? But what that does, even redeployment, is that it opens up a sense of the future. That not everything that the Lord did here was somehow vain, which is the sense that they often have. Yeah. Um, anybody else? We're okay. All right, so I'm gonna talk to the ladies about, um, I wanna talk about children's literature, so I just wanna be chill. Um, and talk about children's literature. And the only request that I have from you is that I, I found this mug in my cabin, and it says that Anoka, Minnesota is the Halloween capital of the world. So if somebody can tell me why that is, 
I would be very appreciative. All right? <laughs> Thanks, guys. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.